Friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We're reading verses 25 to 27 and verse 32 this morning. Uh, We are in our third week in a series entitled The Images of the Church, where we're taking a look at one image per week over five weeks to consider uh, what is the church. And this week we are looking at the church as God's bride. Now, a quick note before we read our passage, uh, usually after the reading of scripture, I say something like, this is the word of the Lord, and the people of God respond, thanks be to God. Uh, this year, after the scripture reading, we're reciting actually 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 24 to 25, where I'll say, the grass withers and the flower falls, and you'll respond, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And in this way, we are declaring the unchangeableness of God's word as it is his truth given to us in a much changing world. At this time, would you stand with me as your act of worship for the reading and receiving of God's word? Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27 and verse 32. Hear now the reading of God's word. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. Would you join me once more in prayer? God, in order to receive from your word, we need your spirit of illumination to be present with us, opening our eyes and opening our hearts to behold wondrous things in your law. I pray, God, that with your spirit at work in our hearts, that we would receive today's message and that it would be good news to our souls. But not only would we receive it as good news, we would receive it uh, as your means of training us up in righteousness so that we would become uh, the men and women of God that you so desire. Help us, Lord. Bless this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I don't know what it is, but uh, I've been thinking a lot about marriage recently. Um, As Deacon Elmer prayed, uh, for so long I've been single. And I've been thinking about marriage, and it it is indeed a mystery. Uh, And I think about when Apostle Paul calls marriage a mystery He's not writing that as a married man who still can't figure out his wife. And he is kind of scratching his head saying, mystery, you know, marriage is a mystery. Uh, That's not exactly what's going on. When Paul says that this is a mystery, he's saying that what was once um, not quite understood, what was once in a dimly lit room in the Old Testament has now come to light. And Paul is actually going to tell you what this mystery is. So in verse 32, Paul writes this, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that refers to Christ and the church. What Paul is saying is that the human institution of marriage now revealed uh, reflects the relationship between the ultimate groom, Jesus Christ, and his bride, the church. And so today, as we look at Ephesians 5, we're not meditating so much on marriage as we are the model. What is marriage based on? What does it mean for the church to be God's bride? Now, so often when we think of the church, it's our human tendency for our eyes to be drawn toward the faults and the failures of the church. I'm sure many of you have some experiences, either yourself or from those whom you love, who may have had bad experiences with the church. We think of the hypocrisy of the church. We think of the headaches of the church. We think of the heartbreaks caused in the church. And so we can't help but consider the church in a negative light. 
And yet when God looks at the church, when God sees her blemishes and her spots and her wrinkles, he doesn't turn away in disgust, but he draws near in desire. Because when God sees the church, he sees his bride. Beautiful, bright, and brilliantly radiating. Now, this doesn't mean that God is blind to the faults of the church. We all know those overly affectionate mothers who uh, can't see any fault in their perfect and precious child, even though they're so clear to all of us. God is not like that overly affectionate groom who is under some delusion, believing that the church is the most perfect and precious bride who can do absolutely nothing wrong. In fact, quite the opposite. God, more than any one of us, sees the faults and the failures and the blemishes and the spots and the wrinkles of the church so very clearly. The difference is when God sees that, he doesn't break the engagement. He doesn't annul the marriage. He doesn't seek after divorce. When God sees all of our imperfections, he pursues us even more. And so the image of the church as God brides means this, that we, the church, God's people, are those who are undeservedly loved and covenantally committed to. We are a people who are undeservedly loved and covenantally committed to. So those are the two things we're going to look at today. First, we are a people undeservedly loved. Now, in verse 25, Paul begins this way. Husbands, love your wives. Now, that imperative given to husbands is grounded in a spiritual truth, in a spiritual reality. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The way husbands are called to love wives is grounded in the more central and true reality of Christ's love for his bride. Now, the thing about Christ's love for the church is that it's not a sentimental kind of love nor is it a love spurred out of duty and obligation. That Jesus' love for the church and his bride is not an emotional reaction that's kindled by the right mood, the right vibes, the right setting, the right music playing in the background. Christ's love for the church isn't caused by anything external to himself. Nothing external to Christ is drawing out his love. Christ's love for the church is originating in himself. Or put another way, Christ loves the church, not because we are lovable, but because he wants to love us despite what we're like. Now that distinction is very important for us to understand because one way is how we love and the other is not how we love. It's easy to love the lovable, isn't it? It's easy to love your husband or your wife or your boyfriend or your girlfriend when they are doing lovable things. And earlier this week, I stopped by the PetSmart uh, down the street from our church. And they have this whole setup where uh, you can adopt dogs and set up appointments. And they have all of the puppies out. And, you know, this coming from a, from a person who's had a traumatic experience with dogs, who, who doesn't, uh, who's not very fond of dogs, uh, in my estimation, there are two kinds of dogs, right? Not only two breeds of dogs, I mean, two kinds in terms of their personality. Uh, there are those dogs who um, really don't want you to bother them, right? Dogs who uh, your presence is really an inconvenience to them. Uh, They don't care if you're there or not. Uh, In fact, it'd be better if you left them alone. There are those kinds of dogs. And then there are cute dogs. (laughs) Dogs that when you come into the room, it's like Christmas morning for them. Uh, dogs that want to show you affection and want to be near you and want to lick you. Dogs that are excited to see you. And so isn't it true that in the natural inclination of the heart, you gravitate toward one kind of dog over the other? 
because we're attracted, we're drawn to the things that are easy to love. And it's a lot harder to love that which shows no affection in return. Now, when it comes to the church, which is the church? Are we lovable or are we unlovable? You see, many of us, even if you doctrinally affirm total depravity, you confess the utter sinfulness and the evilness of the human heart, there's still a part of us that thinks we can do things that make us lovable to God. There's a little voice in our head that tells us, uh, makes us want to believe that our obedience or our sacrifice or our attendance or our giving or our service uh, is something that impresses God, is something that uh, God draws near to because he so desires. But that's not an accurate picture because right there along with Ephesians 5, which says Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, we also have to balance that out with the truth of Romans 5 verse 8. And there Paul writes, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, you got to understand that distinction. Christ didn't love the church when we became saints, but he loved us when we were still sinners. When there was nothing lovable about us, when we were covered in filth and the mess and the yuck of our own transgressions and iniquities. You know, as a pastor, I've had a lot of conversations with people in their experience of the church, particularly a group that's now been labeled the de-churched. And often those are people who grew up in a church and through some bad experience of the church, uh, either through relationships or teachings or various things, they've left the church. And often it's so easy for them to, to list out the reasons why. Gossip in the church. Oh, we hate the gossip. The self-righteousness of believers. The strife in the church, the division, the church fighting, the church backstabbing, the church splits. And when they list out all of these reasons why they've walked away from the church, they're basically listing out all the reasons why the church is unlovable, why we don't love the church, why it's easier to reject the church than to receive the church. But hidden in that assumption that the church, uh, if the church proved herself to be better, uh, was more convenient to put up with, was easier to put up with, then, you know, I would go to church. Then I would care for the church. Then I would participate in the life of the church. But is that the attitude Christ had toward his bride? Right? Didn't Christ love the church precisely when it was difficult for him too? That Christ loved us when he had every reason not to. Because, you know, in the Bible, when the Bible talks about our sin, it does so very interestingly. It also picks up on the same marriage metaphor, the same marriage imagery. And so our sin, our rebellion against God is, often called, is oftentimes called idolatry, right? putting something above God, worshiping something in place of God. But the Bible will also take that very word and use the marriage metaphor and say, we're not only committing idolatry before God, but we're committing adultery before God. That in our sin, we're not only uh, disobeying and breaking a law or a rule or a command, but we are cheating on God with another lover, chasing after old loves. It reminds me of those stinging words God says to the prophet Hosea. Hosea is called to marry this prostitute, Gomer. And even after they get married, Gomer keeps leaving Hosea again and again and again. is chasing after old lovers. And so morning after morning, Hosea wakes up and Gomer's not there. And God says that you are called to pursue Gomer just as I am pursuing Israel. And so God actually says to Hosea in one particular episode, in Hosea chapter 3, verse 1, God says to Hosea, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress even as the Lord 
loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Now, in another place of scripture, the language is even more severe. The language is even more strong. Because in Ezekiel 16, this is what we read. The charge against Israel. Yet you are not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. Adulterous wife who received strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. You see, when God loved and pursued his people over and over again, they were constantly engrossed in spiritual adultery every single time. They were caught in sin. They were covered in shame. And even then, God loved them. And even then, God loves you. And this isn't because God is pleased with our sin, but it's because by his infinite grace, God's displeasure over our sin never leads to God's disinterest with us. We aren't loved because we deserve to be. We're loved despite being undeserving. Seeing every blemish, every spot, every wrinkle, seeing all of your idolatrous ways, seeing all of your adulterous ways, Christ still gave himself up for you to make you his bride. He sacrificed his life for us, not to make us lovable, but he sacrificed his life because he already loved us. Not when we were cleaned up, but even when we were filthy. Consider the magnitude of the groom's love for his bride. That Jesus loved us more than the comforts of heaven and that he loved us more than the crown on his head and he loved us more than the cries of the praises of the cherubim singing his glory. That Christ, the groom, loved us, his bride, so much that he came to us in a cradle. He came to live among the curses of men. He came to die a criminal's death on a cross. You know, the church, his bride, you and me, we are a people undeservedly loved, loved incomprehensibly and incredibly, loved in sacrifice, loved in service. Now, if this is true, if Christ loved, loves his bride with this sort of affection and desire, then there is no way that a Christian can divorce loving Jesus and loving the church. You can't love Jesus but hate his bride. You can't be faithful to Jesus, but unfaithful to his bride. You can't be committed to Jesus without committing to his bride. Since Jesus loved the church, even when she was undeserving, even when we were undeserving, that means we love his church. We love this church. We love all those in this church, even when we feel that they are undeserving. In fact, even when others rightly don't deserve it. And a church that can practice this kind of love for one another will be a place that will make the church exceptional and extraordinary like no other place on the earth. That we don't love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ because they are lovable. We love them because Christ loved them. And he loved them so much that he died for them. Here's the reality. You look around this room, the people in this room, there are some that are your friends. There are some that you're closer to. There are some that you're not. There are some that you are distant from and some that you straight up don't like. But the people around you, although they may not mean much to you, that's not what your love for them is based on. 
They mean nothing to you, but they mean the world to Christ. So much so that he willingly gave his life. He laid down his life for them. And that's what makes them ultimately precious. You love fellow believers, not because they are lovable, but because they are loved by Jesus. So as a people who are undeservedly loved by Christ, we then love his bride in the same kind of way. Now, here's the second thing. We are a people covenantally committed to. Paul goes on to write in verses 26 and 27 that he, Christ, might sanctify her, the church's bride, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. By Christ's blood, he not only purchases the church, he not only pursues the church, but he commits himself to purify the church. That Christ knew he was purchasing, buying something that needed a lot of work, a fixer-upper. So that when Christ enters into the marriage, it doesn't come with a return policy or a receipt. There's no blood back guarantee that if we don't turn out to be the bride that he thought he was, or that we would be, that we can be returned. Right? Jesus wasn't shopping for a bride in the way that we shop for a home or we shop for a car. He didn't look until he found the best one or the best deal. Then there's human nature. I don't know where I picked this up from, but uh, when I go to a grocery store, I, I never grab the first cereal box. I always go one arm's length in and grab one from the middle. Some of you are saying, of course. What monster grabs the first one? That box that has a dent on it, that's clearly been mishandled. That box at Best Buy where the tape has clearly been torn and put back on. You never grab the first one. You always grab the better one. We naturally go for the most presentable, but Christ, what does he do? He's drawn toward the unpresentable. So he doesn't commit to the church from a consumeristic attitude. He doesn't ask, which bride is best for me? Rather, Christ commits with a covenantal commitment. He asks who he can give his best to, who he can give his life for. He knows the church, we, his bride, need much sanctification. If you look at the church and you know we need sanctification, Christ knows. He knows we're a work in progress. He knows we're quite far from being what we will one day be. But he pledges himself to get us there. To present us, him, her, her, the church, the bride, to himself one day with glowing spotless radiance. This is Christ's commitment to the church. The sanctifier, the cleanser with the washing of the word to present us one day. He's at work sanctifying each and every one of us, the sins and the stains. And he knew it would require nothing short of his purifying blood. Not just the purchase, not just the pursuit, but the purifying. So imagine, put yourself in his shoes. Put yourself in the shoes of a spouse who has to commit to their other spouse with this kind of covenantal commitment, receiving nothing in return except for duty and obligation to have to care more, pick up the slack, do everything, a one-sided relationship. How many of you would commit to such a thing? I'm reminded of this story by Ian uh, uh, concerning Ian and Larissa Murphy. Uh, basically, they were a college couple. They went to Wheaton College and they were graduating in December. And so they decided as soon as they graduated, they would get married. 
December 2006. Well, unfortunately, on September 2006, three months before, Ian was involved in a terrible car accident in which he was left with severe uh, brain injury. Uh, physically uh, unable to walk, confined to a wheelchair, unable to do a lot of things like feed himself or use the bathroom on his own. So the question of what were they going to do? You see, for Larissa, marrying Ian would mean she couldn't walk down with him on the day of their wedding. It, it, it meant that in the future, Ian could never drive her and the kids to church on Sunday morning. Marrying him would mean she could never leave him even for a second without arranging a caretaker. It would mean her life wouldn't be anything like the life of her friends and the life of her sisters. Yet despite a future of certain difficulty, of knowing she would have to care for Ian and clean Ian and clean up after Ian, she still chose to marry him. And what's incredible about this story is that this accident happened before they were married before they had made covenant vows to one another. And so by agreeing to marry, fully aware of what this would mean, um, the sacrifice it would require, the responsibility, the tremendous work, the burdens that she would have to shoulder on her own, she committed to him in the covenant of marriage anyway. Who of us would do such a thing? And reflecting on this, she writes, we know that we have made a covenant to each other just as Christ made to the church. The church that he made that covenant with is so imperfect and sorrowful and disabled, just like our marriage. You see, in their story, we get a glimpse of what it meant for Christ, the covenant with the church. What did you bring to the marriage with Christ except the sins that needed cleansing, stains that needed washing, wrinkles that needed to be straightened out, and blemishes that need to be covered. What else did you bring? And yet, despite all the work and the inconvenience it would cost him, Jesus willingly took us as his bride anyway. And there on the altar of the cross, he still declared, I do. There's no prospect that we would better ourselves with some time. There's no potential that we could become the better version of ourselves in the future. There was only the promise. The promise he made that he would do the work necessary to present us one day in glory and splendor. This is the work he's committed to do. You know, I've had the privilege of officiating weddings, of attending many weddings, and without fail, I can say this truly and honestly, that every time the bride walks into the room, she is absolutely glowing and gorgeous. Always so stunning, and rightfully so. All of this work put into making her look beautiful early in the morning, waking up and doing hair and makeup and the dress. And there's so much attention given to her so that she, the bride, is presented to her groom, radiating in all of her earthly glory. And yet in a greater way, on that final wedding day, Christ covenants himself. He pledges himself not only to be our groom, but to be our makeup artist to be our hairstylist, to be our personal dress tailor. That he is working to present us before him on that day, fully arrayed and adorned in his robes of righteousness and holiness, radiating not with the temporary glory of earth, but the eternal glory of heaven. See, that's the work he's covenantly committed to do for us, his bride. And if this is true, 
If Christ's commitment to his bride is to this end, then that means for us, we can covenant and commit to an imperfect church. No church is already perfected. No church is without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And because we dare not have higher standards than Jesus, being more picky than Jesus himself, we can commit to a church, even if it's far from what we want it to be. You know, for those of you who are members of this church, uh, you know very up close and personally how imperfect we are. But rest assured, Christ is committed to purifying his bride. Rest assured, Christ is committed to purifying you. You see, before you're startled and surprised by the ugliness and messiness of others, and we always see it in others first, recognize Christ is dealing with those things in you first. He is at work to sanctify, to purify, to present this church, his bride, wonderfully and gloriously before him one day. And so in this new year, may you commit, double your commitment in attendance and participation and sacrifice and in service with the vision, with the hope that Christ is sanctifying his bride. Now, for those of you who are not yet covenantally committed to a local church, a simple and honest question, why not? What are you looking for? What are you waiting for? You know, you may have heard it said, there is no perfect church. And if there is, don't join it because you're going to mess it up. There is no perfect church. There is only the imperfect bride of Christ, undeservedly loved and covenantally committed to. And that's what we are. That's the best any church can be on this side of eternity. An imperfect people, but undeservedly loved and covenantally committed to. Because if Christ can commit to this, his church, his bride, so can you. Right? This is the church. There are no secrets to our church, Cornerstone. We're ugly. Not physically. Spiritually. We're full of blemishes. We're messy. Life in this church is painful. Disappointing. We abound in faults and failures. We're a hospital full of sinners and sufferers. But we are the church. We are Christ's bride. We are loved and we are committed to. And in return, then, we love and we commit. Let's pray.